So we are coming to the 86th Psalm today, and uh, I, I always like to read the passage before we get into our handout, and I'm going to do something a little different today in the reading. I'm going to read this Psalm today from the, the new Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, I'm not going to be teaching from it, so I'm going to just get, expose you to how it sounds a little different. You can follow along in whatever version you have there in your lap. I, I, I'm, I don't envision switching uh, but uh, it's nice to read something, uh, a rendering that's a little different. You'll notice as we read, as I read this, that wherever the divine name is used, it will read as Yahweh. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Keep my soul, for I am a holy one. O you, my God, Save your slave who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I call all day long. Make glad the soul of your slave, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my distress, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Yahweh. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever, for your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from Sheol below. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of ruthless men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your slave and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O oh Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. May the Lord add blessing to the reading and now to the study of his word. Well, what kind of psalm was this that we just read? That's always the first question I like to answer as we start to walk through our handout. And we could say that this psalm is a lament, a individual lament, so that the, the song, the person singing, uh, presented in the psalm as an individual. And this is a faithful man, even though he talks about God's forgiveness a couple times, there's no confession of sin. He, in fact, he stresses that he's one who follows after the way of God. So it's an individual lament of the faithful. It's a lament by David that was born out of life-threatening adversities. There are numerous unnamed enemies late in the psalm as well who were probably bringing those adversities to his front door. Um, the entirety of the psalm is in the singular I don't know if you noticed this, but there was not one instance of we or us in the whole psalm. It was always me and I, my, uh, 
Um, the only plurals are there's references to false gods, there's the nations round about David, and then there were his enemies. But this is, uh, again, a, a song of the individual. It's, and and this, is, this psalm is entirely a prayer. Every single verse is directed to God. There are a lot of psalms where part of it is prayed to the Lord and part of it is said about the Lord, you know, maybe talking, counseling people, but in this case, every single verse is spoken directly to God. The middle section, verses 8 to 13, is in a way interruptive. And I don't mean by that that that's an accident or a mistake. That's an intentional, interruptive celebration. Uh, Those middle verses, verses 8 to 13, have a very different tone to them. They're much more positive and uh, uh, celebrating the fact that God is great and good. And this is this thinking about God's greatness and his goodness gives an emotional anchor to David as he's facing his troubles. He has lots of things that concern him. He's pouring out his heart in prayer at the beginning of the psalm, and at the end of the psalm, he's pouring out his heart in prayer. But in the midst of all of that anguish, there is this anchor for his soul in the greatness and goodness of God. And that's a, a wonderful example about the, the emotional states that we go through there are things that distress us, and we, we should be concerned to a degree about them and bring them to the Lord, but we need to stay anchored in the reality of who God is. Let's talk about the setting behind this. Um, the author, of course, is David. We're told in, uh, I guess we'll call it verse zero, <laughs> the heading, that it is a, a, a prayer of David. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but the the book of Psalms is divided up into five collections, and we're in collection number three, book three it's often called, and that runs from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. This is the only Psalm of David in book three. All of the other Psalms are either by the sons of Korah or by Asaph or his descendants. And you can, if you just look back at Psalm 85, and verse zero, or the heading, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And the same thing at Psalm 84, and uh, back at Psalm 83, a psalm of Asaph. Um, Anyway, Psalm 86 is the only one by David in this short collection, and that really stands out. We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. A lot of commentators think that Psalm 86 is a compilation psalm. That is, that these were prayers that David uttered at different points, and some later inspired editor has combined them all into a prayer of David. And the reason they think that, and I, I don't really agree with that idea, it's not a terrible idea, but I'm not persuaded by it, but, but here's why commentators think this. Almost every phrase in Psalm 86 can be found someplace else in the Psalms. The kinds of prayers, the expressions, show, be kind to me, I am poor and needy. Uh, Almost every single phrase you can find, especially in Psalms 1 to 72, you can find those particular phrases. And adding to that, the, the heading to Psalm 86, where it says, a prayer of David, is a very rare heading. It only shows up one other time, and that's way back at Psalm 17. And that signals to some interpreters something different about this psalm, that it would have such a unique heading and that the phrases are recycled. 
So for that reason, a lot of folks think, yes, these are prayers of David, but they have been compiled uh, later on in the, in the time of the Old, Old Testament. That, it's possible, but I, I like to think instead that perhaps David composed this psalm himself late in his own life, uh, late in his own life after he's had decades of composing psalms and he draws from the very expressions that he had penned uh, earlier in his life. Either way you look at it, uh, these are prayers that David uh, certainly uttered. All right, let's flip over to the, the middle of your handout, and we'll talk about the background, and we really can't say much about the background at all. <laughs> there, that is, we, it's not possible to date this psalm to any particular period in David's life. He talks about troubles, life-threatening troubles. He talks about enemies, but he had enemies all throughout his life. Before he was king, after he was king, uh, it could have been born out of any, any period. Um, if there was a particular crisis, if there was some singular event or series of events that gave birth to this prayer, David was very careful to write about it in general terms. General terms. That is, he never names his enemies. He never says specifically what the life-threatening situations are. He writes about it very generically. And actually, this is a common feature throughout all of the Psalms. Very seldom do the Psalms tell you who the enemy was or what the trouble was. They write about these troubles in general terms so that other people and later generations of people cannot better identify with the song. You know, I have adversities and I might even have enemies. They're not the same as David's, but this song is written in such a way that I can identify with that. You know, we have, sometimes there's songs that are used in, uh, in, in church that are really specific to somebody's circumstance. And, and I can be edified by it, but I'm also a little bit, a little bit conflicted. There, there's, a, there's actually an old Negro spiritual that I love to sing called A City Called Heaven. I, I love that song. It has wonderful lines. But there's a few spots in it that are a little too individual. For instance, and, and I'm not saying it's wrong to sing. I, I'm just saying it's, it's a little awkward for me. So there's a line that says, My mother is already in glory. Okay, I can identify with that. But my father's still walking in sin. <laughs> well, no, that's not true for me. <laughs> my brothers and sisters disowned me. Well, no, that's not <laughs> true of me either. Because I'm trying to get in. You know, I'm trying to, to get toward heaven. So, I mean, I can identify with the gist of that, but the, the specifics of that are not true of me. The Psalms, when they talk about their distresses, tend to be not so specific. They're left more general so that we can identify a little more easily. There, there are still things that are about David's experiences that are not identical to mine, but he has been led by the Spirit as well as the other psalmists to write in such a way that other people in similar troubles can, can identify with it. Okay, let's talk about why Psalm 86 is where it is. This has often been called the, uh, the lonely psalm of David. <laughs> and not lonely because David feels alone, but because in book three, it's the only song by David. If you're, if you're kind of skimming your way through Psalms 73 to 89, it's Asaph, 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 Korah, 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 David. David? And then we're back to Korah and Asaph before it's all done. And it really stands out, why, why did the editors of the Psalms put this one song of David 
in the midst of other psalms. A lot of the songs, by the way, in book three are written after the exile. We saw that last week. Psalm 85 talks about life after the exile and, and it's difficult in the land and they need God's help. I mean, that means that psalm is written probably in the 400s. David lived in the 1000s. So why, you know, why place this here? Um, and the answer is, I can't tell you exactly. <laughs> I, th I think, and one thing I didn't put in your notes is, that might be an intentional way of, of stressing the importance of David to the Psalms. That even though this is a collection mostly of songs by other people, David is the real, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so there's like a token reference or inclusion of, of David within this portion. And there's also some, some themes in the Psalm that we read that connect back with others. I won't take time to, to cross-reference them all right now, but the theme of God's goodness, you find that in Psalm 85 and also in Psalm 84. Um, one thing that Psalms 85 and 86 have together, they're both laments. Psalm 85 is a lament of the nation and their trouble after the exile. Psalm 86 is a lament of the individual. So we go from the we to the me. Um, Psalm 86 borrows lines from the Song of Moses. When uh, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, Exodus 15 uh, is full of great statements about God. And the next Psalm, Psalm 87, alludes to the Exodus as well. And I want you to glance at that with me very briefly, Psalm 87, verse 4. And, and you're going to say, I don't see the, exo uh, the, the exodus here, but it is actually. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. Uh, okay, so there's a mention there in verse 4 to Rahab. Do you see that? Rahab, that is not the woman Rahab at Jericho. In the Hebrew text, that name is spelled differently. Rahab is a reference to a, uh, it's, it's really the name of a monster. And elsewhere in the prophets, Rahab is a metaphor for Egypt. Egypt. It's not a nice way to refer to Egypt. The monster Egypt. Um, Israel had been sort of swallowed up by the monster Egypt, but God brought them out. And so, you know, there's people who brag about, well, I was born in Egypt, I was born in Babylon, I came from here and there, but the real, the real crown, the prize in those days was to say, I was born in Jerusalem. Um, so there's a reference to Egypt there. As, back in Psalm 86, there are hints about the Exodus, we'll comment a little bit on them later, as there's verses that are quoted from the Song of Moses. Um, one other connection Psalm 86 has the things around about it. Uh, Psalm 86 verse 9 mentions that the nations are one day going to recognize who God is. Verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And uh, Psalm 87 verse 4, which we just mentioned, talks about all these other great nations and the implication is they're not really all so great. <laughs> you know, the great place is Zion where God himself dwells. All right, so those are some connections that this uh, lonely psalm has with things round about it. Let me make some comments about 
interesting and uh, edifying things that we find in Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is a petition drive. <laughs> I don't mean by that it's trying to get signatures, but I mean it is driving home prayer request after prayer request after prayer request. There are, if you count them all up, a total of 15 prayer requests made in Psalm 86. Out of 17 verses, that's, that's quite a lot. And you might even double them up. You might even count them more if you split up, you know, like a quarter of a verse. Um, but there's at least 15 different requests. And, and some of them are repeated. Some of the same language early in the psalm is used at the end of it as well. There's also a lot of good cause that David lists, why God ought to help him. There are eight instances of the word for, and by for we mean because. Actually, in the New American Standard, there are seven times where it's rendered as for, and one time where it's because. Uh, just look at verse 1, and you'll, you'll see one of them. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. And let's look at another one in verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. So you could actually, with a pencil, go through and circle all of those, and it's quite an impressive chain of reasons that he gives that the Lord ought to hear these 15 prayer requests that he gives. Some of these reasons are how helpless David is, how much he needs the Lord. I'm calling to you, and the reason I'm calling to you like this is I'm really in need. And then the other reasons that he gives are the reasons I'm praying to you like I'm praying to you is because you are so worthy of trust. You've proven yourself faithful and powerful. So David is mindful in those because statements of he's very mindful of his trouble and he's very mindful of God's power and his presence. And there's a lot of calling on God in Psalm 86. Uh, not only is every single verse addressed to God as prayer, but the Lord is addressed in various ways. The most common title in Psalm 86 is the, is the title Adonai, which is translated as Lord. And you'll notice that our English Bibles typically do it this way. They have capital L and then small letters. That's a cue if you're reading the New American Standard and I think even the NIV does this, that's a cue that the Hebrew word there is Adonai. It's not a name, it's a title. It means master, lord. Uh, it's a title that stresses his sovereignty. So that's the name that's used the most times, seven times out of 17 verses. And then go to the next page. The, the, the actual name of the Lord, Yahweh, shows up four times. And our English Bibles typically have used all capital letters to do that, unless you're reading from the new Legacy Standard Bible, which actually pronounces it for you as, as Yahweh. Four times the divine name is used, and then six times the title Elohim, or God, is used. And many times it's an expression like, my God. And then to top it all off, there are six times where there's an emphatic, in the Hebrew text, an emphatic you, where he's really stressing, adding a strong personal touch. You, O oh Lord, calling on God to, take, to give him attention in his trouble. Now, I mentioned oh, a moment ago earlier that um, there's a lot of repeated lines in this psalm, and it's true that most of the expressions that you find in Psalm 17, you can find 
earlier in the Psalms. And not just earlier in the Psalms, you can find them even in places like the writings of Moses. How many lines are we talking about? There are around 40 lines, 40 phrases in Psalm 17 that are found either word for word or almost word for word from other parts in the Psalms, as well as out of the Torah. This is an evidence that the author is steeped in Scripture. And of course, David was. David is an author of Scripture as well. Um, but it's, it's amazing to see him not only quote himself, but how he quotes from the Torah. Of particular importance are the lines where he quotes from the writings of Moses. Verse 5 and verse 15. Let's look at those uh, for a second. Verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Um, verse 15 echoes some of these ideas. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Those lines are famously first found in the writings of Moses. And I, I won't take the time today to to read it's an extended portion from Exodus 33 uh, verses 17 on through chapter 34 verse 6 but this notion of God being gracious and compassionate slow to anger and forgiving this these are some of the most profound theological revelations of God within the Torah um, and they're echoed also uh, in the book of Numbers chapter 14 verse 18 um, so David is intentionally drawing on the revelations that had been given to Moses about God's character. So what you're hearing in some cases is the words of Moses in the mouth of David, showing the ongoing, uh, I'm running out of sp space here, the ongoing relevance of ancient words. The ongoing relevance of ancient words. If you think about it now, how old, uh, how long ago was the book of uh, or when was the, the books of Moses written? They're written around 1400 B.C. David is writing this somewhere after 1000 B.C. Uh, 400 years later, David is drawing rich comfort from the revelation of God's attributes. And I tell you, that's something that we need to bear in mind. These, this is a really, really old collection of books, you know, but they, they never lose their timelessness. They are really rich in what they teach us, ancient wisdom that we can apply to every circumstance today. So there's a lot of recycled lines, and it's done in an artful and rich way. But there is also, letter E, one unique expression. There's one phrase in Psalm 86 that you'll not find anywhere else in the Bible, not in these exact words. And it's, it's actually what many people believe to be the center of the psalm. And that's in Psalm 86, verse 11. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. That, those lines aren't that unusual, but the last one is, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. I, I think some of our versions have, give me an undivided heart. Uh, we even have some scripture choruses that are based off of this unique phrase. David is the first one to say something uh, like this, although the idea behind this 
is found elsewhere in Scripture. That is, the idea of having a single-hearted devotion where my heart, that is my, my thinking and my affections, are not split up and given some loyalty to this cause and some loyalty to that cause, or some trust to this God and some trust to that God, or some praise to these gods and some praise to God alone. No, unite my heart, may it be undivided in its loyalty. You know, the, uh, James speaks about um, not being a double-minded man, you know, where you're, in one hand you're trusting in God, and the other hand you're sort of trusting in yourself. Um, and earlier Moses talked about the importance of giving wholehearted devotion to God alone. I, I included there a cross-reference, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. What, what are those verses? Those are, in, in Judaism, those are considered the most fundamental verses within Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So there's only one God. That's one of the key tenets of Judaism and Christianity for that matter. What follows right after that? Hear, O Israel, you better get this down now. There's only one God and it's our Yahweh. The, the outcome of that is, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your might. Uh, if you're a pagan person in ancient days, there's Baal and there's Ashtoreth and there's this god and that god and you might worship one sometimes during the rainy season and you might pray to another one during the dry season and you, you know, your, your affections are split. But because there's only one, he must have all our devotion. And I, I don't know that David is... Uh, tempted to worship pagan gods. I suppose when he was with the Philistines for uh, a year and a half, there would have been some kind of pressure upon him, but even apart from the fact that other people are worshiping other gods, he, he knows that his heart can be attached to other things and people and interests that would take him away from a single-hearted devotion to God. Well, give me an undivided heart, he asks. And that's a great prayer for us. One last uh, comment, uh, introductory comment. How do you like these 40-minute uh, introductions? Huh? Uh, there is a prophetic vision. That's your last blank. A prophetic vision that David has in verse 9. Now, as you read the psalm, David is clearly confident that God is going to eventually answer him and bring him out of his distress. But on top of that, he has an eye toward the great final victory of God. And, and it's hinted at there in verse 9. Uh, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Wow, now that's some pretty amazing, that's an amazing vision. That never happened in David's day. It didn't happen in Solomon's day hasn't happened in our day yet but he has a vision of in the end the world recognizing that Yahweh is the Adonai of all the world the sovereign over all they will come and bow and recognize who he is now you could say that in a partial way in a maybe in the beginning in a introductory sense that this vision is partly fulfilled 
as the work of the gospel goes around the world and people from every tongue and tribe and nation are seeing Jesus as the Savior and as the Lord. But we're not seeing whole nations bow. I mean, we would love to. We'd love to see, uh, why don't we start with ours? But it's great to see our nation bow to recognize the Lord. Uh, but the fullness of this vision is something that's going to be realized in the second coming when David's greater son comes back. And actually, this verse here is picked up by John in the Revelation. And why don't we turn to that passage before we go through our visual outline chart. Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. If not the very words, the, certainly the image of what David sees is picked up here. We'll look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And there it is in verse 4, quotation from Psalm 86. All right, let's go to the back page of our handout and back to Psalm 86, and uh, we'll use this to walk our way through the, the verses. Up at the top, I've created a purpose statement for this psalm. As David faces a myriad of troubles and enemies, he draws from rich expressions of Old Testament faith as he repeatedly cries to his covenanted Lord for deliverance, knowing he will ultimately prevail among the nations and in the circumstances confronting his servant. Uh, Let's go over to the green heading and uh, the green column that talks about the headings. The heading says a prayer of David, so the song type is a prayer. This is, again, only used one other time in the Psalms. And then, of course, of David means that this is the authorship. He's the one who composed these expressions. The, the psalm itself, the poem itself, rather, breaks up into three movements. Verses 1 to 7, there are opening pleas for help, and that is balanced at the end of the psalm, verses 14 to 17, with concluding pleas. <laughs> see, I see I have pleas with the E on there. A concluding pleas for help. Uh, And in the middle, verses 8 to 13, is the celebration of Yahweh's greatness. Let's take a look over at the left column, the opening pleas for help. Grace to the godly amidst affliction in verses 1 to 7. And and these verses break up into two halves. Prayers to help a faithful servant in crisis in verses 1 to 4. It starts off with calling for God's attention to his affliction. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am afflicted and needy. There's a little bit of rhyme in the Hebrew text that we can't translate uh, in a rhyming way, but the word, the phrase, answered me and 
I am afflicted, they both rhyme with each other. Um, so there's a little bit of poetic artistry right there. That, that phrase, I am afflicted and needy, some versions have I am poor and needy. This is kind of a stock phrase to describe anyone who's in a place of powerlessness. It could be literal of a person who's very poor and doesn't have resources to do anything, or it could even be used of a king who's at his rope's end and is beyond what his ability can do. It's an expression of humility, an expression of dependence. In verse 2, there's pleading for God's care of a covenant keeper. Verse 2, preserve my soul, keep my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. I am a godly man. Now, he's not bragging, he's, but he's stressing, I'm faithful to the covenant. In fact, the, the term here, godly man, is um, chesed. Chesed. I've told you before about that Hebrew word chesed, which means loving loyalty. This is the, the noun for that chesed, one who is loyal and loving. Um, this is the, the basis of the word chesedic. Hasidic Jews claim to be ultra-loyal. Uh, so David is saying, I am, I am faithful to the covenant. It doesn't mean he's sinless, but the general bent of his life is towards faithfulness. So uh, I'm praying to you because I trust in you and I've, uh, I seek to live my life in faithfulness. Um, in verse 3, he's pleading for an answer to repeated prayers. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. I've been praying and praying and praying about this. In fact, this psalm has prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer. Uh, you, you get in these situations of life where you're just seeking God again and again and again, and it, you, you wonder when and how an answer might come. And uh, so he's, he's pleading with God to be gracious in giving him an answer as he's repeatedly asked. He's praying in verse 4 for a joyful outcome. Make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I'm, I'm, I'm giving myself to you. I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm in your hands. Lord, I, I want this to come to a good resolution. Um, now, we know we can have a gladness of soul even while we're waiting, but I think the gladness he's looking at here is for the end of this trouble and an answer to his prayers. So there's a lot of pleading in these first four verses. But notice how verses 5, 6, and 7 are more about confidence. He's still pleading, but there's a greater note of confidence that the Lord is trustworthy. He's confident in his pleading for help. Verse 5, there's a confession of faith in God's great care. For you, uh, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. He's appealing to the graciousness and the mercy of God. That expression, ready to forgive, is a unique word. This is the only time it shows up in the Old Testament. Well, for the Bible, for that matter. Ready to forgive. That This is his nature. In fact, I think the Legacy Standard Bible had it. You are by nature forgiving. And abounding in loving kindness and chesed to all who call upon you. This, this, this uh, reminds us of the words of Moses in the Song of Moses elsewhere about the, the abounding goodness of God. He makes in verse 6 a repeated call for God's attention. Give ear, O Lord. And that, that's the idea of, of uh, inclining your ear, of giving attention to listen to the prayer. 
Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplications. And then in verse 7, there's more confidence expressed. Confidence in God's eventual answer. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. I've, I've learned in my distresses that you can be trusted, that you hear, and that you answer. The answer may not come as quickly as I want, but I've learned it is good to wait on you. And so I'm going to keep praying and keep waiting. So that's the first movement, these opening prayers for help. And then, verses 8 to 13, there's a very different uh, mood. It's a celebration of Yahweh's greatness. He is the unique Savior of the unique sovereign who saves. Verses 8 to 10 are a confession of the sovereign God's excellent greatness. He is incomparably greater than all the gods, in verse 8. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. I don't think David believed that other gods actually existed, that Baal was a thing, a real thing. Now, there are demons and created spirit beings who pass themselves off as gods, and I think a lot of the gods of the nations, as Paul intimates, were really just uh, demonically inspired confusions. But even if we granted that they existed, they're nothing compared to Yahweh. He is so far greater than them all. And the things he did in bringing Israel out of Egypt, no other God had ever done anything like that. In fact, David goes on in verse 9 to say that eventually the nations are going to revere him as the sovereign. Verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. All these nations who worship all these other gods, Baal, Asherah, Marduk, uh, Aten, you name them. I mean, you can't name them all. There's gazillions of them. Uh, there's going to be a day when they're going to realize that all of that is just folly and nonsense. And they'll recognize who the real God is, and they'll worship him. They'll glorify him. I think this is, a, uh, this is a millennial vision that David has here, as he does a number of times in the Psalms. They shall glorify your name. It's so good when people among the nations, like us, come to see God's sovereignty and his kingship and his saving work now. And it's great for us to be involved in calling the nations now uh, to trust him and believe in him. Then in uh, verse 10, there's a, com there's a statement about God being completely unique in both power and position. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And see, there, there you go. David does not believe that these other gods actually exist. They're, they're, really, they're, they're really empty things. In fact, there's a, there's a beautiful expression. Let's see if I, I don't have it circled here. Um, I'll see if I can find it real quick. I think it's in, uh, yes, in Psalm 96. One, can you flip forward a few pages? Psalm 96, this is not by David, but Psalm 96, verse 4. Uh, let's back up to verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols but the Lord made the heavens. Now, in the Hebrew text, the word idols is actually a, uh, it's kind of a euphemism that's used. So, the word for gods is Elohim, and the word here for idols is Elohim. 
Elalim. It's a rhyme. And Elalim actually means worthless things. <laughs> These gods that people revere, they're not really Elohim, they're Elalim. They're nothings. And that's the same sentiment back here in Psalm 86. Uh, you alone are God. So after confessing how great, how the excellent greatness of God, look at this prayer for an undivided devotion in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Not just teach me about you, but teach me how to walk after you, to walk after you in faith and obedience. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Let there not be any other thing or person that divides me my loyalty unto you. Even in the midst of his distress, look at this. He's in a time of distress. He's got needs, but he sees that his greatest need is to walk after God. And that's, that's good counsel for us. We can't excuse ourselves and our troubles to be sinful and overreactionary and self-centered and say, well, I get a pass right now because I'm in great distress. I can do what I want. No, that's not the way it works in seeking the help from the Lord. We need to have an undivided heart. Uh, verses 12 and 13, there's confidence in the sovereign God's personal grace. Uh, there's a, a pledge of public thanks that he's going to make after he's delivered in verse 12. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. In the Psalms, that phrase, I will give thanks to you, almost always means I am going to bring a thank offering to the sanctuary and publicly acknowledge what you've done when this, when this trouble is all past. And I, I'm, I'm not going to do this in a perfunctory way. This isn't just me going through the motions. I will do this with all my heart, as he says. In verse 13, there's the certitude of God's great grace at work in his deliverance. Verse 13, for your loving kindness, your chesed toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Most of our versions translate the end of that verse past tense, you have delivered. But the majority of commentators actually say that this is what's called the prophetic past tense, meaning it should be understood, you will deliver my soul. In fact, it's as good as done. You will deliver my soul from the depths of Sheol. And that's why I'm so confident that and I anticipate the joy of this deliverance and bringing to you the thank offering, and publicly acknowledging what you've done. So in the midst of his hardship, there's this uh, joy of what, who God is and what God will do. And now we come to the last portion of the psalm, verses uh, 14 to 17. The concluding pleas for help. And if you've got a pen or pencil, knock that last E off of please. It's the wrong kind of plea. <laughs> concluding pleas for help. Grace for the godly amidst opposition. Here is prayer for deliverance with a confession of trust in verses 14 to 15. And the prayer for deliverance is particularly from a gang of godless enemies in verse uh, 14. O oh God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. We don't know who they are. Are these Israelites? Are these Philistines, Amalekites, this ite, that ite? We don't know. Uh, and he's left it generic, so that others could identify with the situation. The, the, the expression, a band of violent men, it's a congregation of violent men. He, he envisions going to the congregation in verse 12 and giving a thank offering, but for right now he's got another congregation to deal with. 
and they're not a pleasant one. Godless enemies, they don't set the Lord before their eyes. That is, they're not living life with a view that God is right there. These are the kind of people who say, God is not here. Uh, But David has confidence in God's abounding grace, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Look at how he's multiplying these expressions. This is the the phraseology that's borrowed out of the the, uh, song of Moses from Exodus 15, as well as other parts of the Torah. So there's a, a prayer followed by an expression of confidence, and he does that again now in verses 16 and 17. Prayers for God's attention with a confession of trust. Verse 16, he's pleading for God's grace to a faithful servant. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. So he's repeatedly called himself, I am your servant. And now he adds to this, I am the son of your handmaid. Okay, handmaid is a a woman servant. So either this refers to his mother who was herself a servant of the Lord, and he's stressing his heritage of faith. My mother served you, and I serve you. Or maybe he's not thinking of his mother in particular. He's, just, he's thinking more generically about how uh, he's like a second-generation household slave. You know, there are, there are servants who are brought into a home, and they get adjusted and it takes a while, and eventually they say, okay, this is where I'm going to be. But if you're born into the home, that's your world. Your whole life is around doing the work of the master of the house. And that's how David describes himself here. This, you, you are my master. You're the one and only master I know. I'm committed to you, and I know that you'll hear this prayer, and you've shown that you're committed to me. In verse 17, he pleads for a sign of answered prayer to dispel the proud enemies. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Uh, Show me a sign for good. I think what he's saying is start to answer this prayer now so that others will see that you were at work and it'll put their proud resistance to an end. And then the psalm ends with another expression of confidence, confidence from help that he's experienced in the past because you, O Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. I can trust you. You've proven yourself to be trustworthy. Well, I hope that our prayers, like David's, will be steeped in Scripture. The the more we expose ourselves to God's Word, particularly what it says about Himself, about His power and His person and His faithfulness and His goodness and His mercy, the more we steep and stew our minds and hearts in that, the more... Biblene our prayers will be, that they'll flow with the very thoughts of Scripture and we'll find great comfort for ourselves in our times of distress. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had this morning to study this portion. We wish to be people who are infused with the very words and thoughts of Scripture uh, so that it may minister to us. And even as we pray, that we might pray with greater understanding and greater clarity that you are a God who is at work, who in the end will triumph and bring about your glorious plan. Thank you for the promises you've made to us in Christ. We hold on to him, we hold on to your word, and trust that you will bring us through whatever trials and your sovereignty you have for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.